When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Access, access Manchester's indie rock and roll station. Access Manchester. The Access Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester. Today's album that I'm talking about on the Access Long Player is a proper benchmark of Britpop. Embraces 1998 debut album The Good Will Out. I'm going to be talking to Richard McNamara from the band on today's podcast episode about an album that was much hyped and somehow managed to live up to that hype, going gold on its first day of release, something I talked to Richard about shortly. As always, if this is an album you wish to get reacquainted with, then you can find a link to it in the podcast description. Richard tells some brilliant stories about some of the tracks on this album, the making of it, and particularly the cover art as well. So hopefully once you've listened to this podcast, you will go back and listen to the album. It's a fine piece of work. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Just click follow. However you're listening, you'll get the next episodes as soon as they're ready. But sit back and enjoy Richard McNamara from Embrace talking about the band's debut, The Goodwill Out. Today's classic album is Embrace the Goodwill Out, which I'm doing with Richard McNamara. How you doing, Richard? Hey, yeah, good man. Good to talk to you. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I always struggle with your surname, so apologies. <laughs> it's like it's a bit of a tongue <laughs> McNamara. Every time I say it, I always... it's a learning curve, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, let's McNamara rhymes with black banana. Oh, there we go. Sorted. <laughs> I'll remember that one. Right, let's get on with talking about this classic album, which. When I was doing a reading on this and doing a bit of research, amazed to read that it came out back in 1998 now, because it feels like yesterday, but 23 years ago. Makes me feel really old, because I remember exactly where I was when I was listening to that album back in the late 90s. Now, time's a weird thing, isn't it? Particularly when you're talking about music, because people grow old, memories grow old, but music doesn't necessarily grow old, because it's always there. So does this album feel like it was 23 years ago that you made it? Um, God, it's such a hard thing to get your head around, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I mean, you know, I've, I've been playing the songs pretty much every year since then. So it's been on tour usually. So we've kind of never sort of like, we're not revisiting it, if you know what I mean. We've kind of, it's kind of always been there for me. So it maybe doesn't feel as, as long ago, you know, to me. It's still quite a current thing in my life, if you get me. <laughs> yeah. Have you, as your relationship with those songs, obviously, as you say, you've been playing it for 23 years you've not left the songs yeah. alone has your relationship with those records those songs on that record changed over that period of time oh, yeah definitely definitely i mean when you know when you first make a record you know everything's got to be absolutely perfect and you've got to love every single second of it which kind of almost drove us nuts when we were recording it mm. but coming back to revisit it a couple of years ago we did the goodwill out sort of 21st i think it was anniversary and there's a couple of songs on there where you listen to it and you think oh that sounds a bit 90s you know what i mean a bit dated but um 
I think the reason it stands up as, you know, as you said, classic album, it's what we always meant to make was a classic record. I think it stands up because there are moments of just like pure embrace on there. Do you know what I mean? Mm. All the best bands, all my favourite bands have got a sound about them. And I think on some of those songs, there's just a noise we make when we get together. If we don't overthink it too much that we just, you know, if we just naturally start playing. And I think those, the songs that we applied that process to are the ones that have endured the most for me, probably. It's interesting that you say you went out to create a classic album because I was going to ask you, it's an album that is repetitively listed in kind of best indie albums, classic indie albums, 100 best albums lists, usually towards the good end of the list as well. I assume if you went out to create a classic album, you're fairly comfortable with it having that accolade, with it having that tag. I mean, yeah, we always had really like, you know, big aspirations for it, you know, we... (laughs) Our kind of thing was if it's not that, then what's what's the point? You know, we don't just want to be like a little indie band, if you like. Mm. I mean, I don't know if the amount of times that we said it's a classic album has managed to like convince everybody else <laughs> it's a classic <laughs> album. But, well, you know, I don't know how much of it, how much of it's true. <laughs> but yeah, we were sort of listening to like you know like the Revolver by the Beatles, sort of like Pet Sounds. You know, we had like a list of about twenty albums. Me and Danny used to go to like the library in Bradford. You know, when we were on the dole and we couldn't afford to buy music, when you still had to buy music, and then we used to borrow cassettes used to be able to take out, I think, five cassettes a week. And we just literally had like the 100 classic albums that was listed somewhere in the NME, I think. And we just kind of went through it and brought them all home, studied them, tried to sort of absorb some of it and then sort of apply it to what we were doing. Would part of your process be creating a song and then you'd maybe have your your rough cut or your your master laid down, you'd take a step back and go, how's this going to sound in 20 years? How's this going to sound in 30 years? Will it kind of stand the test of time? Was that part of your thinking while you were creating the album in the first place? I guess a little bit. I mean, we don't, we didn't really know what we were doing at the time. We were kind of, we were working with a local engineer, Dave Crefield, in a local studio that was like in a red light area, which we insisted on working on for some reason, in, for some reason, I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> it was rough as assholes. <laughs> and we, we were kind of like just finding our way through it, which, I kind of think again probably adds to the the sound of it and the atmosphere of it you know you can't sort of set out to make a classic album all you can do mm. is, is do your absolute best and hopefully it captures something of the time and it you know it defines a time I think I seem to remember that being a definition of a classic album um and I think we kind of did that you know went well definitely went somewhere along that line you know if definitely if you can imagine like how gravity works you know when a planet flies past another planet or the moon goes around you know it kind of it'll bend its trajectory because of the gravity and I think that our album kind of bent the trajectory of of you know indie music at, at the time and it sort of went veered towards kind of like Coldplay Keen whereas it was kind of on a very much a sort of like a, a Rolling Stones Oasis Beatles sort of lad rock we kind of brought the the heartstrings back a little bit I think it's a great analogy when you did go back to play the anniversary gigs uh, I think it was just before lockdown wasn't it and just before the lockdown literally like the I think it was the Sunday night before we locked down on the Monday yeah so proper <laughs> another significant moment in time but when you were playing <laughs> those gigs you said you listened to some of those tracks again and maybe you thought, well, that's a bit 90s or, or whatever it was at the time. Were you tempted to go back? Have you ever been tempted to go back and rewrite history a little bit, rework the songs in maybe using modern techniques or maybe using the older heads that are in the band? Um, Not really. I mean, that's, I think that might be something that happens in the future. I don't know. I think we've still kind of got like a lot of life left in us, you know. Um, mm. We're getting, you know, we've been writing songs for the next album and we've got what I call creative blue balls. You know what I mean? It's going to go off when we get together, I'm sure. Um, so we're not in any rush to kind of revisit things. And there's always that thing as well, which I kind of buy into that's 
you don't want to change it too much because the people that have bought a ticket to come and see the, the Goodwill out don't want to hear our new version of it, you know. Mm. I remember Lou Reed doing a version of Venus in Furs that was just nothing like the one that I loved. And I just thought, what, what's the point? Why would you change it so dramatically and take all the life out of it? Just because maybe you're bored of playing it. You know, the people that have bought the tickets aren't bored of hearing it, otherwise they wouldn't have bought the tickets. So you've kind of got to play for them a little bit sometimes, I think. I want to go back to day one of recording the album. Do you remember what it was like striding into the studio, guitar under your arm, ready to start making it? It wasn't that much of a sort of defined line because we'd kind of been in and out doing demos. Hmm. And we sort of went in to record an EP first, and then we sort of stuck around to record another EP. The reason that we did EPs, four tracks, was because we were getting so much hype, and we only had like one song out. So we, we figured we need to get some music out here so that they can actually hear what it is, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, mm. it's all just going to be, you know, the big hype machine, and we, we kind of like shied away from that. So there was never kind of like, right, album starts recording on such and such a date. You know, it was kind of like we were we were sort of like a third of the way through it before we realised that this was it. You know, we thought we were just doing EPs and singles, and then turned out that, you know, more than one track off each EP went on the album because, you know, we'd have been strung up if we hadn't included them. Right. So yeah, there was no. I mean, there were moments when we went to massive studios, like to record the strings for good, good people, and you know things like that, which were kind of like wow sort of moments. You know, really took your head off. But yeah, in terms of like day one, it wasn't really a day one. It was kind of merged into it. <laughs> How did it work with things like getting the string sections involved? Because like you say, you guys had come from fairly humble beginnings as musicians on the dole, buying albums and or renting albums from libraries. So I imagine when you kind of go into a studio for the first time now it's either going to go either way you're kind of thinking right we've got a labels budget here we can blow it on whatever we want we're going to get a harp section flown in from america or whatever it is or you're going to kind of keep those humble sensibilities and almost be a little bit in awe of the fact that you can go and record with a full string section it sort of came around because we bought a synthesizer we got interest from management tony perrin uh, at big life he, he still manages to this day actually and um we sort of like, because we were so skint, we sort of thought we'd try it on. We said, oh, we need a bit, we need some new gear, you know, to help <laughs> us realise these songs. So I think they gave us like a grand or something. And uh, we bought a synth. And I think we were we were sort of playing good, good people. We used to rehearse in, in or write in Mike's back bedroom. Uh, he used to be playing on what's called like a, I think it was an SPD-11, I think. It was like a, like a drum, octave drum pad that you hit with sticks and then you've got a foot pedal on the floor. And we all had headphones on. We were all plugged into the, you know, the little four-track recorder, all just singing and shouting all the time, trying to come up with a melody. It must have sounded like, you know, someone was being murdered next door. <laughs> so, so, and we got this synth, and um, Danny kind of came up with that, you know, I think he was trying to play his, his vocal melody, and it just came out sort of slightly different. And that was sort of like, we knew that that was like a whoa kind of moment. That's that's something, you know. So when we mm. got into the studio to record that song, Dave Creffield, the uh, the producer, he said, let's get Mickey Daly. And it was like, we knew Mickey Daly. He was in a few other bands in Leeds and, you know, he was kind of like a face around town. Really nice guy. And uh, Dave said, well, Mick knows how to play keyboard. I mean, I thought it was a bass player because he was playing bass in the band at the time. And so Mickey came in and we basically just said, right, Mick, we've got two and a half hours. We need a string arrangement on Good Good People. And then we transferred the sort of string line that Danny had written onto trumpets. When we came out of the studio with that cassette, we knew it, you know, we knew it. It was a slam dunk, man. It was, there was no way it wasn't going to happen. It's sometimes just no with songs, you know what I mean? And then ongoing from that, I think the next thing was like maybe fireworks or weakness. It just kind of seemed to be something where the problem would be that we'd have a ballad and it was like, wow, we don't want to do ballads. How are we going to, are we going to turn these into something interesting? It was like, well, let's just keep whack the strings on it because it immediately sounds massive, you know. And, you know, Mickey's always at that kind of thing. 
so yeah it's just kind of you kind of play to your strengths and your weaknesses you say you had an idea that it was going to go massive when you were making these tunes when was it that you really knew because when all you good good people came out the first release of that single it was really limited edition i think it was like yeah. one and a half thousand copies or something like that and it just went massive largely because of the radio play a load of djs spotted it picked it up and started playing it did that yeah. catch you off guard or what was your reaction could you seem like you're quite you guys were quite confident at this stage that you it was just going to happen was it kind of like yeah yeah we expected this this is all part of the plan I think it was like all part of a massive group hypnosis where we all told each other that we were going to the top, you know, which top, the very top, you know, like the Beatles used to say, you know, we're going to be playing stadiums. We had our sights on that and we just kind of, I don't know if it's youth or I don't know what it is, but just a faith that it was going to happen and that it, it couldn't not happen because we'd all devoted our lives to it. You know, me and Danny were out of work. We sort of packed our jobs in. And there was a kind of like, I think one of the things we said was, if there's no safety net, you don't fall off the highway. If there's a safety net there, then chances are you probably fall off it. So it was just kind of an ongoing belief that it was going to happen. And I think in some ways, I don't think we appreciated it at the time. Because mm. um, kind of like we've got a management, yeah, that's obvious that's going to happen because we're ace. And then, you know, well, we've got a record deal and, you know, that's inevitable. And, you know, some of the guys at the labels, even before we signed to them, were asking us to sort of like change structural elements within the songs, which immediately took their name off the table, you know, in a really sort of <laughs> arrogant way. It's like, fuck what do you know, mate? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we ended up with Hut, uh, who were amazing, who just like literally just wanted us to do whatever we wanted to do. And, you know, when it went, when it came out, so I think it went to number one before it, it actually came out, just on pre-orders. And we kind of wow. thought, well, that's, that's like, you know, part of the course. It was, just what it, happens. Was, it was gold within 24 hours, wasn't it, of its release, yeah. which is incredible. Yeah. 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 Well, I think it was on pre-orders that it was gold, yeah, before it actually came out. So there were 100,000 copies in the shops, which is when you get your disc. Absolutely phenomenal. Not enough, I don't think. You know, if I could go back and do it again, I'd be buzzing a lot more, I think. You worked a lot with a producer called OTT on the album who was known more at the time for his work with kind of electronica more than indie rock. What was the thinking behind getting him involved in the album? Well, on Big Life Management was Youth, the producer Youth. And Jazz Summers, who was the kind of like, um, you know, the the figurehead of, of Big Life along with Tim Parry, he was saying, we need to get Youth in to remix this track. And we're like, you know, who? Youth, we need him to remix his track. So we're like, what, really? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the version that we'd done sort of started with acoustic guitar, sort of went around the chords once, and then, you know, two, three, four, and then the drums came <laughs> in. It was much more sort of like your typical embrace kind of affair. Mm. And he said, let's get Youth in to mix it. And like, before we went down that night, we were like, I remember our Danny saying, if he, like, if he wants to like change or if he wants to like put this there or he wants to turn that up or turn that down, then he can get stuffed. There's no way we're going to let him do that. So anyway, we got to Butterfly Studios in Brixton, which is where your studio used to be. I don't know if you still got that house, actually. And it was like a big old Victorian terrace house on about four floors. And it had like a studio on every floor of some description, like a small demo room or a mix room or a live room or whatever. Really creative place. And he wasn't actually on hand to mix it, but Ott was mixing it, OTT. He was one of well, youth's engineers at the time. Right. Um, and he's in there with his, with his uh, facing sideways because he reckoned he could only hear out of one ear. And he had no shoes on. And uh, <laughs> and we were all sort of like in the garden fretting about it and biting our fingernails and sort of saying, oh, you better not fuck it up, you know. And um, anyway, we went in and he played it and it just blew our bloody heads off, man. It just sounded massive. So then, you know, he was kind of our safety net mixer guy, if you like for like quite a lot of the early stuff. Are there any moments that when you listen back to the album, you kind of can hear, you go, well, yeah, that's his influence there, or that's where he elevated that to a different place? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, he's you know learned a lot from art man. He's he's just everything was full on. That was his style, you know. Get the guitars on, make them sound as loud as possible. Get the drums on, get them as loud as possible. You know, it was all slam bam. You know. I want to talk about the third single that came off the album, which is One Big Family, which is the single where you take up lead vocals, which is quite an unusual step for a band, I think. Mm. Not so much having a track on the album where it's not the lead singer singing, it's someone else that's kind of done, but to put that out as one of the first singles is quite a big call, I think. What prompted that? Well, originally Danny was singing that song. It was kind of um, mainly inspired by sort of a cross between PJ Harvey and Primal Scream. And Danny was singing like, you know, get ready for the ju-, like a PJ Harvey kind of style, sort of, you know, sort of low slung, sort of vocal like that. And I was doing like a high octave. And I think we read it touted for being the next single. And just when we were just in the studio, I think we were in with Steve Osborne doing that. It just didn't sound like a single when he did it. So I goes, what, why don't I go and try and belt it out? Because I've got a belting voice and Danny's has got like a croonery type voice. So I went in and belted it out and it sounded like Liam Gallagher. And then Steve Osborne just went, whoa, man, that's it. That's that's the one. <laughs> and I think uh, Danny was kind of partly relieved that he didn't have to like, you know, it wasn't on his shoulders anymore to sort of pull it off. So yeah, that's that's kind of how that came about, I think. How was your relationship with Danny working through the recording process here? Because I imagine there's probably pros and cons of working with your brother because brothers argue at the best of time, but brothers have also got their back, each other's backs at the best of times. Did that make it more difficult or more mm. challenging to make the album? Or do you think that actually made it an easier process? I think we've kind of got a, a, a workable relationship in that we'll only argue if we care enough. So the person that gets their way is the one that cares the most at that particular time. It's not, I mean, it's not like, you know, they don't care about the outcome. It's just that if you, you know, if, if you're really strongly about something and the other guy's like, well, I'd prefer it one way, but if you're dead set on it, then let's go mm-hmm. that way. Uh, so we've kind of got a workable relationship in that regard. Danny's quite a, kind of quite a control freak a little bit. So you've got to like sort of throw that into the mix. And he's also like a diagnosed narcissist. Uh, so it's a lot easier to deal with. Now I know that. Now I know that he's, you know, wired differently. <laughs> <laughs> so if he starts doing something that I find like a little bit unusual or out of order, I just go, ah, it's because he's a narcissist. That's why that is. And I can kind of put it in a, in a box and kind of get me head around it a bit better. I mean, I don't get, you know, I don't lash out or get violent or shout. Mm. I just I just sort of swallow it all down and like quietly boil and go insane. Are there any moments from this album that you, maybe arguments that you lost, that you're still smarting about to this day, that you go, oh, if only we'd done it this way. We might have gone platinum on day one. Rather uh, than no, I mean, I've let go of everything. I mean, the most ridiculous one I remember was we were in the mastering room. Nowadays, it's all on Pro Tools. You can just like go click mix one point, you know, or hmm. mix 12.0.AZ final mix one, you know, and it'll shoot it straight up exactly as it was. And you can tweak it from there. But back in the day, you kind of had to cover all your bases. So you do your mix, and then you do a vocal up a dB, and then a vocal up 2 dB, and a vocal down a dB, and then, you know, on and on and on, and back in vocals up, back in vocals down, instrumental, backing track for Top of the Pops, which has got everything except the lead vocal on it. You know, you'd come out with a DAT tape of about 20 versions of a song. There was one version where it was vocal up 1 dB, BVs down half a dB, and he wanted the one that was vocal up 1 dB and BVs down 1 dB. So we were arguing over half a dB, which is tiny, on the backing vocals. And I was so I was so wound up about it because it, it kind of, at the time, it changed the whole feel of the song for me because, you know, I kind of like the whole gang sort of singing the mm. chorus, whereas he kind of wanted to be stood out in front singing it. And, you know, he's right. <laughs> he was definitely right to do it that way but at the time I just don't and that's kind of like why nowadays I'm a bit less you know a bit less strict about stuff like that I'll just mm. kind of let stuff go a bit easier because I know it doesn't matter in the end Is it possible to pick 
a favourite moment or a favourite track off the album for you? Uh, I, th- I remember like it, it was being played on Radio 1 quite a lot back in the day. And I think they played it all the way through. I was coming to the studio one day and the good one out was on. And when the horns came in at the end, I kind of heard it again for the first time, if you know what I mean, because I got a bit of distance, a bit of perspective and a different setting. And it just felt like we'd done something which was so much better or bigger than all of us put together. You know what I mean? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And it's sort of like, it felt like it wasn't in our hands anymore. It had kind of gone on to the next level and just grown into something that which we could never have imagined, you know? And I remember feeling that like, you know, it's kind of like that's when I sort of like shut the lid of the briefcase going yeah, yeah job done you know <laughs> put it down finally because I, I finally realized that I'd been through all the, the the torture of making it and you know it was a bloody hard album to make I'm not gonna lie but then I can kind of I felt at peace with the whole process and it was worth it you know so I think that's probably my favorite moment of it. Am I right in thinking that the version of the Goodwill Out that's on the final album isn't originally how that song was supposed to be or going to be recorded? Yeah, it was originally spliced with a song called Somebody Better, I think. I think that used to be the verse to it, or that used to be or the chorus of that used to be the chorus of it, one or the other way around. Right. I remember thinking that the verse of The Good Will Out should have been the Somebody Better verse because I preferred that verse. <laughs> I mean, again, again, glad I didn't win that argument. <laughs> <laughs> but I really loved the verse to that song. But yeah, the original, the very first option that we had on it, because we tend to do that, we'll sort of like write like 10 things and like mash them all together like, put all the best bits together rather than sort of sitting down and writing it from start to finish, you know, like a song like Someday, which was on our fourth album. The verse was written around the time of the Goodwill Out and the chorus was written just in like 2004, you know. So they, they, can, they can span quite a long time. But yeah, it was it was a bit dirgy, I think, when we first did it. But the chorus was good. Before I let you go, Richard, I want to... And we don't often talk about the cover art on these shows, actually. It tends to be focusing on the music, but I think the image on the front of the Goodwill Out is such an iconic image that I wanted to just mention it. It was taken in New York City and it's this picture of the band striding down the road, sun setting or maybe rising behind you, I'm not sure which. Yeah, setting. You, setting, is it? Do you remember that photo being taken? And was it expressly taken to be the cover shot? Yeah, yeah. I remember a passerby telling Mary Scanlon, the photographer, that she was doing it wrong because she was facing the sun. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many photographs that guy had uh, taken, you know, that made it onto albums or whatever, but he was saying, oh, you're, do- you're doing that wrong, lover. You should be facing the other way. But uh, I think the original the idea was was that we were all going into the sun and someone was coming back from the sun. That was sort of the original idea. Uh, and it was kind of like a continuation of the sort of like the Americana images that we'd sort of had on the previous EPs. We love the Chemical Brothers album sleeve with that Americana vibe, so we kind of wanted to go for something of that feel because, you know, Britpop was... You know, we didn't want to be Britpop. We wanted to be something else. Aligning ourselves with more Americana seemed the way to go. But yeah, we it was it was always going to be, we flew out to New York specifically to do the, the cover shot. And we went, you know, all around New York looking for places to do it. And then Mary just went down to Christopher Street, down that end of the bottom of town, found this amazing sort of sunset spot. And uh, we had like, I don't know, half an hour or an hour to shoot it in. Um, and she actually left her a Hasselblad camera on the cafe table. <laughs> and she had to like rush back to get it <laughs> luckily it was still there you know we thought it might have been nicked but she had to rush back to get it in time for the flight so then we kind of they all came through and there was one that the label wanted to use where you could see both of danny's arms because he thought it looked like he'd had his arm cut off 
because he's kind of got that swagger, hasn't he? It's a, it's a very northwest yeah. kind of walking style where he's got one yeah. arm slightly behind him and he looks like he's really striding down the street. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I think the thing that well, it was either him or the label. Somebody wanted us to use a different shot anyway because <laughs> it looked like he left, lost his arm but he kept it. Richard, absolutely pleasure to speak to you about what is, as we've said before, a truly classic album, The Good Will Out. Good luck with whatever comes next from Embrace, because I know you're a long way from finish, so I'm sure there's loads more music to come, but thanks very much for your time on The Excess Long Player. Cheers, thanks for having me. It's been great. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in fall with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. Thank you for listening to that chat with Richard McNamara, talking about The Goodwill Out, Embrace's debut album, and actually the album that inspired me to pick up a guitar. I say that as if I can play the guitar. I can't really play the guitar, but it inspired me to have a go anyway. I remember getting the chord music, thinking it was too complicated, and then I think I went and bought an Oasis music book instead. Much easier. If you want to listen to these shows, by the way, on this podcast in situ, they go out on Excess Manchester, a radio station in Manchester, but you can also find us online, excessmanchester.co.uk. The interviews alongside the albums from the track as well, so a bit of a different experience. And if you are enjoying these interviews, well, click subscribe, click follow, and you'll get the next load of episodes as soon as they're published. See you then.